This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 14th of August 2021 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Today... This week, on the morning before the interment, we did the toughest drop at the charity shop. Into a mountain of boxes, we packed the contents of her wardrobes. It reminded me of how cool she was, even into her 90s. Our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, says goodbye to a fantastically elegant lady. The journalist and communications consultant, Simon Brook, will be sitting in with me, going through the papers and commenting on the news. And then... We learned this week that the more voluble cohorts of the anti-vaccination movement may not contain among their seething ranks our best and brightest. Andrew Muller reflecting on the week that was. Do stay with me because that's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. American troops have flown into Kabul to help evacuate embassy personnel and other civilians in the Afghan capital, a US official said today, a day after Taliban insurgents seized the country's second and third biggest cities, Kandahar and Herat. 3,000 US troops will arrive in Kabul by Sunday. The Pentagon fears insurgents will move on the capital within days. One woman is dead and two people are missing today after torrential rains touched off a landslide and engulfed at least two houses in western Japan, with rivers overflowing their banks as rain continued to pound the area. A wide swathe of western Japan, particularly the southernmost main island of Kyushu, saw record levels of rainfall, with as much as 37.6 inches falling in one area in three days. And Australia will increase fines to people breaching lockdown rules in the state of New South Wales as it battles a record jump in local COVID-19 infections. And Sydney, the state capital, heads into its eighth week of lockdown, officials said today. The state premier announced we have to accept that this is the worst situation New South Wales has been in since day one and it's also, regrettably because of that, the worst situation Australia's been in. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Now joining me for a look at today's papers, Simon Brook, who's a journalist and communications consultant. Hello to you, Simon. Good morning. Uh, good week? Yes, very good, thank you. Yeah, exactly. Slightly disappointed that this uh, heat wave that we were promised has not materialised, but and then whoever believes the British weather forecast, you know. Absolutely. Well, I thought I'd take advantage of the, the heat wave and head out of London. I had lunch with a rock god, uh, Phil Manzanera wow. made me gazpacho, which was wonderful. Crush of name dropping coming up here, I think. <laughs> Absolutely, but only so I can promote future programmes because he will be on Meet the Writers talking about his whole writing process. And then we went and had supper and indeed spent the night with uh, Deborah Mugark, whose new book is The Black Dress, which is just wonderful. I was just uh, uh, looking at some of her reviews. She's, re- she's, uh, she's described as the Nora Ephron of North London, <laughs> and she really is fabulous. And what great company. And she lives right on the sea 
seaside. So we oh, went wonderful. there hoping to coincide with this heat wave. Yeah. I have to say, I felt very brave yesterday morning, uh, just after dawn. I got up and I did get into the sea for possibly under 30 seconds. <laughs> That's pretty good going, I have to say. Yeah, I did a similar sort of thing in Tembe in Wales last week. And you just feel, I think bracing is probably the most positive way to describe it, isn't it? Yeah, it was uh, Yeah, not, not something I want to repeat in a hurry. Uh, Simon, let's pick up on some of those stories we're looking at in the headlines. And of course, what's going on in Afghanistan mm. is, is just absolutely hugely important. Uh, we're seeing reversals all over the place. Of course, we know that uh, America and Britain and other allies have been pulling out. Uh, and uh, now, of course, more US troops, as we were hearing, are going back there. Britain's had a COBRA meeting talking about troops going back to, and I believe 600 are being sent in. Uh, but this is really just to protect their own. Exactly. I think it looks really bad, uh, doesn't it? I mean, I think obviously what the Americans want to avoid, quite understandably, is the sort of fall of Saigon uh, syndrome where we see uh, diplomats, soldiers, military force, whatever, in a sort of panic, shredding documents or whatever, grabbing onto uh, departing helicopters. So clearly uh, the the US administration working with, as you say, the UK as well and other Western powers is keen to avoid that. But there is an awful irony about the fact that they're sending in troops, as you say, to get their own people out, whereas the people who desperately need that military support are the poor Afghans themselves who are uh, pouring out of the country, causing a refugee crisis, and those who are who can't get out, of course, are just terrified watching the Taliban approach. And I think, you know, particularly as, as a lot of the media point out, the, the effect on women, uh, can you imagine, you know, yeah. if you're a either a woman who has lived through this before, more than 20 years ago, whatever, uh, or, uh, you know, or, or a woman who listens to older family members and friends describing not being able to leave the house without a man, no education, limited uh, hospital and medical support. I mean, it is absolutely terrifying. Mm. Uh, now, on The Globalist on Thursday, we were discussing how this has uh, echoes of what happened 10 years ago with the pullout from Iraq under under uh, Barack Obama, where, of course, what then happened is it becomes a breeding ground for al-Qaeda, for IS and, and, and so on. Now, Rory Stewart is also talking about this, and I think it's worth just uh, revisiting exactly who he is before we talk about what he said. Yes, absolutely. So as the, as the Times uh, piece where he's done this interview uh, with Rachel Sylvester there, political correspondent describes him Stuart, a former politician, soldier, explorer, diplomat, who's now an academic, speaks 11 languages, including Farsi. And I have to say, when I read that sentence, I just thought, why is he still not in politics? Why is somebody with such experience, such integrity, such obvious knowledge and such a global perspective not still, you know, leading the political debate. Um, and, and what's horrifying there is that at one point there was a choice between Stuart and Johnson. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh. obviously, somebody <laughs> went for the, you know, people went for the depth of, uh, of Boris Johnson. So, yes, it, it, there is there's an added uh, dimension of sort of uh, dimension here, definitely. Mm. Now, he knows that that region extremely well because uh, he, uh, ha- he he did that long walk after the uh, invasion of Iraq. He became the deputy, deputy governor of Maisan province. He became a professor of human rights at Harvard. He was the elected MP for Penrith and the border. Uh, he spent a, a spell in the foreign office before he became prisons minister and then he stood for the Tory leadership but he was eliminated in the fourth round. And then he called off his campaign to be mayor of London. So he's not actively involved in politics at the moment but as I say knows this region 
religion extremely, extremely well. What is he warning of? Well, he's warning of the fact that we are going to uh, collapse into uh, chaos, really. And, I mean, you mentioned Iraq, and the other point that he makes um, is that not just the the Taliban will be obviously greatly boosted here. Uh, Extremists around the world will be as well. But we will probably see... um, even if the Taliban doesn't have uh, complete control, we will probably see uh, a form of uh, sort of internecine warfare between the various Afghan tribes, the kind of thing that uh, has torn Iraq apart. So um, he, he's very critical. Uh, he points out uh, in the paper quotes him as saying, the irony is that the West has had only what he describes as a very light presence in Afghanistan in recent years and suffered very few casualties. And he describes the the act of withdrawal by uh, Joe Biden as Trump-like, um, uh, according to the paper. But he also uh, has harsh words for Britain and Europe and other NATO partners, who he says need to share a lot of this blame. There's been a really a really shameful exposure of Britain's weakness in this whole thing, he says. Mm. Uh, and uh, the FT actually picks up on that, criticising Joe Biden and uh, talking about how if Donald Trump were presiding over what's going on in Afghanistan right now, the US foreign policy establishment would be loudly condemning the irresponsibility and the immorality of American strategy. But of course, because it's Biden, there is instead largely, they say, uh, an embarrassed silence. Uh, and it then goes on to talk about um, uh, China and, and the role that China uh, might play in, in, in all of this. Uh, and the fact that if the US won't commit to a fight against the Taliban, uh, th- it, it, there's a question mark whether America would really be willing to go to war with China or with Russia. Um, China, of course, already the dominant economic economic power in East Asia, but but I think unwilling to get involved in, in Afghanistan. Of course, they've seen what's happened with Russia and then following that with America. Yes, absolutely. Gideon Rackman, who is the papers, the FT's, uh, one of their principal international affairs correspondent. Yeah, absolutely. Making the point that uh, Biden will, well, as, as, as he says, Biden's credibility has been shredded in Afghanistan. And yes, as you say, making the point that China will be wary of this. But um, certainly, uh, you know, the, the China is very increasingly aggressive at the moment. Um, and uh, the Chinese regime, he points out, has adopted policies of mass internment and, impression, uh, and repression in uh, Muslim-majority Zhangjiang. Um, but uh, that uh, the, the paper, Gideon Rackman points out that China might also face a classic uh, superpowers dilemma. Is it best to intervene with military uh, might in uh, a turbulent Afghanistan or is it best to leave the country to its own devices? So it's interesting now that uh, China, with this more aggressive international policy, is now being faced with the kind of dilemma that previously uh, the US would have faced. Now, Simon, this story is moving really fast and we do expect that Kabul may be overrun within in the next few days. Incredible when they were talking about it could be weeks, it could be months, and now suddenly, as you say, it could be it could be days, even hours, perhaps. Yeah, um, so this is something that obviously we'll be keeping a close eye on. Now, every week we have a column from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, and a few weeks ago he described very movingly uh, the death of uh, his partner's aunt, and now they've been packing up the house. And although this is, I suppose, a sad subject, uh, he handles it with his customary wit and grace. I've been pretty good at keeping quiet on this front for weeks now. I didn't want to push my luck with you too far. But let me share one final update. Earlier this year, I wrote about the death of my partner's aunt, 
Meg. She had no children, and so we took care of her at the very end. And ever since, I've been sorting through the long legal process needed to settle up the estate. Probate has now been granted, which means that the sale of the house can go through, hopefully any day now. But this week, in another important step, the ashes were interred in the plot where her husband is buried. The service was simple, nicely emotional, and with just a handful of people standing around a very tiny hole in the ground as the vicar did his ashes-to-ashes business. Indeed, the hole was so small that I wondered if the passers-by peeping into the churchyard thought that we had somehow persuaded the vicar to come in all his regalia for the interment of a much-loved pet. Mrs Floppy Ears, I now deliver you into the hands of the almighty Bugs Bunny. Anyway, it was all over in 15 minutes. One good thing is that Meg always enjoyed having fun company and a nice glass of wine. And as well as having Charles with her in the graveyard, the next two plots are her mother's and that of a favourite cousin. Indeed, this corner of the graveyard now feels less like a final resting place and more like the placement for a dinner party that will go on and on. Perhaps instead of bringing flowers to leave by the gravestone, it would have been more fitting for us to leave a bottle of Malbec and a tray of volivants. Anyway, I must say that interring is a far less troublesome venture than scattering ashes. When my dad's remains were dispersed on a damp autumn day in a copse of silver birch trees, a gust of ill-timed wind suddenly carried the ashes in the direction of where I was standing. At the end of the service, when I looked at my brogues, there he was resting not in heaven, but on my aldens. It had been unseemly to wipe him off with the handkerchief in my pocket, so I just walked back to the car through the longest grass and the mossiest spots that I could scout, hoping that he would get the hint. Strange, he'd never been that clingy in real life. There is another link between my late parents and Meg, and I fear many old people. Glue. This is not a metaphor for how people used to stick together. I mean, glue. It's taken weeks to decide where all of Meg's things should go, and because it's a little easier for me emotionally, I've been mostly the one to decide what heads to the dump, what we give to charity, what's kept, and what's sold. Like many people of her generation, Meg had a lot of ornaments, some centuries old, some recent trinkets. But again and again, as you pick up, say, a jug or some cherubic figurine, you notice that a handle or a pudgy foot is held in situ by the ooze of age-browned glue. You inspect a dainty porcelain lady gaily swishing her ball gown and spy that she is missing her fingers, or, in some instances, a whole arm. I'm not sure what grand ball these ladies were once supposed to be rocking up to, but they now seem to be attendees at the annual Factory Accidents fundraiser. Sadly, the next appointment in their dance cards will be the municipal dump. After my mother's departure, I unwisely suggested to my sisters that I would disperse of boxes of similar knickknackery on eBay. For weeks, I would find myself heading to the post office before work to send off another pottery dove or guggle jug to a buyer with equally questionable taste. But I soon learned to inspect the items very carefully pre-dispatch after a gentleman in Lancashire wrote a very angry message to point out that the Ladro Shepherd was not quite right in the head. 
It seemed that, in some distant dusting accident, my mother had decapitated him and then stuck his noddle back on with glue. What's more, she'd gone a bit freestyle and had him looking at an angle that was likely to leave him with terrible neck pain in later life. A fuller inspection of her collection of figurines revealed a bunch of people more patched up than First World War servicemen. But this week, on the morning before the interment, we did the toughest drop at the charity shop. Into a mountain of boxes, we packed the contents of her wardrobes. It reminded me of how cool she was even into her 90s. Everything in this world was pristine. Shoes from Ferragamo, blouses from Diane von Furstenberg and Moschino, and dresses by Jean Muir. Somehow, their departure from the house suddenly made it all seem very empty. And when we came back to the house after the service, the smell of her perfume had finally gone. Many thanks to Andrew. And Meg was clearly a woman of generosity and elegance and will be remembered fondly. Not so some of the departed who, in their lives, built bricks and mortars legacy out of spite, which lingered long after their death. Uh, and there's a, there's a great... Uh, piece by the architecture correspondent in the FT about this walls of spite, Simon. Yes, absolutely. I think it's interesting that they're actually, sort of Edward Heath, Edward Heathcote is actually naming this, if you like. I think this is our, our biggest fear, isn't it? We wake up one morning and find that our neighbours are building a, a wall that sort of, uh, you know, dominates our garden or whatever. But yes, interesting, uh, Ed, uh, Heathcote talks about an example, for instance, in Nightingale Lane in Clapham in South London, where there is what he describes as a strange chunk brick wall standing hard up against an elegant Victorian semi. It was built apparently by the owner of the grand Italianate house next door to prevent overlooking and then the, the piece goes on to look at uh, examples dating from history, the the man in Ireland who, uh, who built a huge wall to prevent him looking over his brother's house which he thought was better than his own and there's a question <laughs> about um, adultery woven into it into the story as well there but um, yeah really interesting examples of uh, of these buildings in some cases, not just walls, but a whole buildings that are constructed by somebody who's taken the time, the money and the effort to build something to block somebody else's view. I mean, what kind of people do that? I don't know. And, and there's also lots of sort of modern uh, examples of, of kind of um, angry paintwork. Uh, yeah. there's, that, there's, that, um, there's that house in Notting Hill where she had uh, applied for planning permission and didn't get it because of her neighbours and she's painted the house in stripes now. Uh, that's <laughs> right. And there's an example here, absolutely, that somebody's painted the, their house in the rainbow colours of the pride flag, which has uh, uh, caused uh, a lot of upset locally. So, yes, why not? If you really want to stick two fingers up architecturally to your neighbours, then plenty of opportunities to do it. I think we just all hope that our neighbours are not going to do it to us for, it, for any reason. It seems like such a lot of effort to invest in something that, I mean, is just there to piss someone else off. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the idea of building a whole, constructing a whole building, for instance, which uh, which is, which uh, Heathcote mentions in the piece, um, why on earth you would want to, to, exactly, to spend that much time and effort to do it? I mean, you'd have to be clearly, I mean, I know revenge is a dish best eaten cold, isn't it? But by the time you've been through the planning process, the construction unveiled it or whatever, I mean, I just hope you are still angry enough to enjoy the fact that you've ruined somebody else's view or obstructed uh, their, you know, their garden in some way. Absolutely. Bizarre. Well, let's let's move on to Andrew Muller, who's always guaranteed to find the kind of discontent in the good news stories. 
We learned this week that the more voluble cohorts of the anti-vaccination movement may not contain among their seething ranks our best and brightest. You know the clip. No. Really? Oh, Whoa. that blows my Whoa. mind. Really? No way. Blow me down. On Monday, a largely bemused London was treated to the spectacle of anti-vaxxers storming the BBC, presumably on the basis of the corporation's complicity in the vast and sinister media conspiracy to propagate the fiction of a pandemic in order to coerce an unwitting population into being implanted with 5G tracker nanobots. <coughs> Were we not supposed to have said that out loud? Ah, well, cat out of the bag. Anyway, the injection rejectors duly descended upon Television Centre in West London, which meant we learned that they had not learned that the BBC actually left these premises in 2013, which meant that the protesters had actually laid siege to an apartment complex, the few remaining studios in which are largely leased to ITV for the filming of inane daytime chat shows. <coughs> It is, however, probably regrettably unlikely that we will learn that any of those involved might absorb this mishap as a salutary lesson in the perils of, as they would doubtless have it, doing your own research. But... In fairness to the misguided, in several senses of that word, rabble pointing their pitchforks in the wrong direction, we did learn that you can't necessarily believe everything you read about COVID-19, especially if you read it in the official media of China. Yeah, fire it up again. No. Really? Oh, what? that blows my what? mind. Really? No way. Blow me down. We learned that Global Times, People's Daily, China Daily, Shanghai Daily and other widely read Chinese outlets had lit upon a buccaneering new voice to cite in their coverage of COVID-19. A maverick, tell-it-like-it-is Swiss biologist, one Wilson Edwards, declaring his belief in a Facebook post that the Geneva-based World Health Organization's investigations into the origins of the virus were likely to be politicised to China's disadvantage at the behest of the United States. What was that? Oh, I see, a scoop. Very good. Anyway, yes, quite a story until someone at the Swiss Embassy in Beijing did what Chinese hacks had not and typed Wilson Edwards' name into Google. You may now take a wild guess at what they discovered. We learned that Wilson Edwards does not, in fact, exist, that there is no record of any Swiss citizen of that name or any pertinent academic articles beneath that byline. And slash but, we also learned that one of Switzerland's people in Beijing is a colossal credit to their country's diplomatic tradition, as they crafted a masterclass in velvet-gloved, steel-clawed euphemism, as we will now demonstrate by contrasting what the Swiss embassy statement said with what the Swiss Embassy's statement actually meant. What they said... Why we appreciate the attention in our country, the Embassy of Switzerland must unfortunately inform the Chinese public that this news is false. What they meant... Seriously, lads, just run with whatever mad nonsense you like, but leave us out of this. What they said... The Facebook account was only opened on July 24, 2021 
and has only posted this one post so far. It only has three friends. It is likely that this Facebook account was not opened for social networking purposes. What they meant? Okay, if any of you bozos would like to buy some magic beans, we can hook you up. What they said? We assume that the spreading of the story was done in good faith. And what they meant? We absolutely do not assume that the spreading of this story was done in good faith. And we learned that a severe test is being put to UNESCO's already famously generous ideas of what constitutes intangible cultural heritage deserving of formal protection. UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list has long been beloved of takers of wry sidelong looks at the news, solemnly enshrining as it does such endeavours as Belgian horseback shrimp fishing, Belarusian tree-born beekeeping, Finnish sauna enduring, Bosnian lawn mowing, Vietnamese gong thwacking et al. We learned that one attention-seeking Spanish village, Algar in Andalusia, which clearly cannot be bothered with actually learning to do anything, is seeking UNESCO recognition for what it claims is its distinct quirk of Chalas al Fresco, which appears to translate roughly as having a chat while sitting outside. Impressed by Algar's combination of laziness and shamelessness, we're going to sign off this week by embracing their tradition ourselves. Here is Monocle 24's staff sitting outside and having a chat, just like the Algarians do. Okay, what does he want us to do this time? Andrew, I have a live show! What am I doing this? Why? Why? Let me out! Enough is enough. Just never ask me for this stuff again, because I'm so... Can you just leave me alone, Andrew? Because I've actually got work to do. I'm really busy. Thank you. No, I just have too much to do. Like, honestly, every damn week is the same thing. Read us line, read us line, I'm going. Bye! Thanks, team. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Very many thanks to Andrew Muller. And Simon, if we were to examine Britain's cultural uh, calling card, if you like, <laughs> I think rather than sitting outside and having a chat, because let's face it, it's always raining and we <laughs> can't do, do that, that? Yeah. Um, it's love of animals. It is. Love of animals, love of strange animals, uh, definitely. And perhaps love of animals who are facing adversity at the hands of the authorities as well. I mean, we, we love that sort of thing, don't we? So, we are clearly talking about Geronimo the alpaca. Could be only one person or one <laughs> alpaca, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so this alpaca has received a death sentence uh, because he has apparently tested positive for the bovine TB virus. Now, his owner says that the tests are flawed, that there are other tests that should have been taken uh, and that there's this almighty row about it and a, a lot of traction. This has got a lot of traction. Now, as I'm speaking, I am looking at the live feed of Geronimo in his paddock. Oh, what's he doing? So he's just actually, he's just sort of standing, kind of chewing the cud in the corner there. But actually, he's looking slightly anxious because his mates are the other side. Oh, no, he's, he's strolling over there to have a chat with them or whatever it is alpacas do, have a little communicate with them. Yep, they're all congregating up that end. So I 
think that probably means someone's coming to see them. I don't know. But breakfast. Fasc- oh, maybe breakfast, yeah. Fascinating stuff. Um, why has this absolutely struck a chord with so many people? It is bizarre, isn't it? Um, the, the Guardian, which is covering the story, as you say, like many other people, has a, an interview with uh, Geronimo's owner, Helen MacDonald, who says, I've just come off the phone with the New York Times, apparently. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's massive, isn't it? As I say, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a sort of human interest slash um, uh, animal interest story. I, I'm wondering as well whether there's something about the fact that we're out of... Uh, we're out of love with experts at the moment, aren't we? And there's a kind of anti the anti-vaxxers movement, uh, scientists, what do they know sort of thing, because, uh, you know, we're very suspicious of them suddenly, so perhaps that's even sort of transferring into animals in some way. And uh, clearly, um, Helen MacDonald, I'm sure she loves uh, uh, Geronimo, along with her other 80 alpacas, apparently. I can completely understand why she wants to deny, you know, the, the medical uh, diagnosis. But, uh, yeah, I just wonder whether we're actually just sort of increasingly suspicious. We just, more and more people, say we, more and more people just don't want to believe what the uh, the medical experts are telling them. Mm. So, I mean, there's a, there's a human shield there. There are sort of people with, with placards saying Alpaca Liberation Front and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and then there is this this video feed. So that there's been a stay of ex- execution for 72 hours. On, on Monday afternoon, I believe, they're going to revisit this and because there's been so many signatories to a petition, they're going to look at perhaps doing another kind of test, which if I think, I mean, obviously, if it comes out negative, then the, the he is spared. Ooh, yes, yeah. let's hope uh, for his but, sake. But if not, I mean, presumably this execution is going to have to take place on, on this webcam. Well, that's true, I suppose, isn't it? I noticed even the leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer, has been dragged into it as well, actually didn't support uh, Geronimo. But, yeah, I mean, this is the power of imagery, isn't it? This is the optics, as we call it sometimes. This is the power of social media and things. It it will be massive. I mean, I have to say, if I was advising the vet that will have to do this, I would imagine you'd want to discreetly draw Geronimo into a shed or somewhere out of the way do the terrible act or whatever, and then, well, probably get out of there as soon as possible, whatever. Yeah, with a uh, bag over you your head. Yeah, completely, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't bear thinking about, so I won't. We'll, we'll finish no, I'm there. So, I'm sorry, I, mean, I really hope he, you know, he, he's given a clean bill of health, let, let's say that. At least he doesn't know what's going to happen. He'll be sort of gently shuffled off in this mortal coil into the wherever alpacas go after life on Earth, I don't know. Alpaca but... heaven? I suppose do you think so. There, do you think there might be separate... Have, OK, we're going down a wormhole. Yeah, I'm going to stop weird. this. <laughs> Simon Brook, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday, at least for the on-air part. Simon and I have a lot to discuss now about where various species go after they die. But, you know, you don't need to hear that. So many thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hall, who sadly will have to participate in that discussion. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you.